Listeners are advised, this podcast contains spoilers. Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcasts. G'day and welcome to The Potterston Tales, your one and only podcast devoted to The Tunniston Tales. I'm your host and author, Aaron Ware, and in today's episode we're going to cover chapter four. There's a lot of walking, so I apologise for that in advance, and also, while we're on apologies, I am truly sorry for that awful, awful theme song at the start. I am not a musician, I am not a music composer. I'm not even a singer anymore since I went through puberty, but I do like to sing constantly and ruin my voice. But I thought I will give it a go and try to create my own theme song. And it ended up like that. And if you think that's bad, you should have heard all the trial runs beforehand. Anyway, I won't ramble on too much before the chapter because I will just ruin my voice. So, may I have a tinkle of music? The Toniston Tales by Aaron Ware Chapter 4 Inception The remaining questions come in thick and fast from Toniston as he and the strange mashup step out into the dark yard. Crack, thud, the human trips over the uneven ground as the Twanimal blows out the lantern. Watch your step, Kapoor says a little too late. Why did you put the light out? Bollycosh, an open flame near hay bales? And here I thought you were smart, sir. Toniston agrees with how silly he must have sounded. What are we doing out here? The boy asks as they blindly walk around the side of the house, where they're greeted by giant shadows rising up above them. Unable to properly see in the pitch black darkness, Toniston presumes they are the three hay bales. He looks around. The plains are vast and the spotlights out in the distance, now a purple colour, seem to be too far away to bring any real light to them. They do, however, look very pretty dancing on the rippling oceanic sky. Stand back, the silhouetted cub paw warns with his gruff but friendly voice, clearly able to see in the darkness better than the human, who had constantly refused to eat his carrots. Can Twanimal see in the dark? he curiously asks. Not me. With a gruff heave, the Twanimal removes the first bale of hay, heavily trots back towards the cottage, then drops it with a loud, cracking thump. However... I have done this more times than I have feathers, I tells ya. I know every knob and nugget of this land like the back of my paw. Beneath where the haystack sat moments ago, shards of purple light are streaming through the large round wooden lid. Kapoor returns and lifts the lid with ease. Stunning purple light shoots up to the ocean sky. Toniston can't believe his eyes. It's amazing. It's also deadly. Kapoor looks rather sinister all of a sudden. How could light be deadly? At the beginning and ends of the day, the colour changes you see, sir. Golden light is safe, dull on the eyes. 
but the white light is blinding, even to Twanimals. However, in between that is the purple glow. Once the light turns purple, it is time to either cover or uncover the light holes. So it'll be golden light again soon. In a few squawks. Where does the light come from? The center of the earth, of course. Stand back. Cubpaw removes the second, smaller bale of hay, tossing it away with a back-straining grunt. It too hits the ground with a crunching thump, allowing Toniston to now see the ground much clearer, finding that it doesn't look like dirt or rock. Is this coral? He kneels down, running his finger over the coarse, dry ground. Dead coral, be fallen from the oceans for millions of years. Wow. The boy is genuinely impressed. Bollycosh, those little holes are not very wow for us with talons, I tell ya. Always getting caught. Toniston mildly laughs at the mental image forming in his mind at Cubpaw's description. One more, stand back. Cubpaw didn't need to tell Toniston this time. He's too busy surveying the scenery. A coral floor for miles and miles, with weirdly shaped monoliths rising up like towers. Toniston's mind flickers, with vague images of his travels with his parents. Somewhere in America, he thinks to himself, but this is certainly nowhere on Earth. To the left, way off at the foot of a rigid formation, a rather large cottage sits, smoke slowly billowing out of the chimney. Excitement washes over Toniston as he realises what this means. Is there another Twanimal in there? Not just any Twan. That is where my good friend Polello lives. The farming bird beams with pride. Can I meet him? Toniston looks and sounds hopeful. Cubpaw chuckles his familiar chuckle. Well, I'm not sure you'd like to meet him, but I'm sure she would love to meet you. Toniston realises his mistake. Oh, my bad. I didn't mean... Not to worry. I am certain she would find it quite the chuckle. Cubpaw brushes his oddly matched paws together, then begins to walk on all fours back to his cottage. Not going to stand there all day, are you? We've got to get into town and back by day's end. The light emanating from the holes begins to slowly turn from purple to orange, then onto a soft golden light, as Toniston snaps out of his landscape gazing, quickly following the Twanimal back to its cottage. If you have lids for the holes, why do you need the haystacks? Toniston inquires as Cubpaw picks up a large barrel with ease. The lids weigh very little. If there is a core quake, or an accident, or perhaps a dead whale falling from the ocean, then they would be knocked right off in an instant, and I would be unable to put them back on without losing my sight. Uh, dead whales fall from the sky? You would not expect them to float now, would you? I suppose not. Toniston feels slightly silly at Cubpaw's response. He looks across the vast field, unable to see any city skylines in the distance. He asks, how far away is town? With your tiny legs, about a third of a day. Oh, will you carry me? Why, when we can ride on this? Cubpaw the farmer steps aside, revealing a child-sized hospital bed parked under a window. Well, a hospital bed that's had a few major adjustments. To say the very least. A hospital bed? Oh, is that what it is? I made a few minor enhancements. It looks great. And Toniston is right. The former hospital bed, somehow having made its way to the bottom of the ocean and beyond, does indeed look pretty rad with its extra wheels, twan-made spring suspension, shopping cart trolley handle, and spikes around the bottom. If Mad Max was ever hospitalized, Toniston gushes. Who? Cupboard tilts his head in a very bird-like manner. Never mind. Well, hop on, she is all terrain, but make sure you hold on tight. Bumpy ride ahead, and you would not want to fly face first into dead coral. It is rather beak breaking. 
At Kapoor's words, Toniston experiences an imaginary sympathetic pain in his face as he pictures diving headfirst into the uneven, jagged ground. He begins to climb on board the gothic-looking medi-vehicle when a very important thought occurs to him. Before we leave, Kapoor, do you have a toilet by any chance? He asks while dancing on the spot. Kapoor simply chuckles, then nods with a knowing smile. The journey into town isn't as bumpy as Toniston had presumed. Having misjudged the homemade suspension on the hospital bed he sits atop of, leaning against a large barrel, the ride is so smooth and the air so humid that once Kapoor runs out of school and family-based questions for the boy, his eyelids start to get heavy. He yawns, trying to keep his eyes open to take in the extraordinary scenery. So far, they've passed a small village of cottages that look to have been made out of whale bones, the nose of a jet plane sticking up, with a neat little house like some sort of cherry on top, and several obscure, mismatched buildings embedded into large mounds of coral and rock. But so far, his favourite sight has been the dozen or so tall, thin waterfalls pouring down from the ocean above. Those took his breath away. As they reach an empty, hilly portion of the plains, an area free of twisted rock formations, or anything at least for a mile for that matter, Kapoor slows the hospital bed down to a complete stop. Pretty empty for a town, are we in Perth? Toniston laughs at his own sass. The joke goes over Kapoor's head. Shh, can you hear that? Kapoor has a dirty black talon pressed to his dark orange beak. No? Listen closer. At Kapoor's suggestion, Toniston leans forward on his hands, his left ear tilted ahead of him. Surprisingly, something does indeed come into focus. He ponders for a moment before asking, Is that water? Just over this hill is a stream that runs directly from seas to seas. As Kapoor continues, Toniston looks up to the ocean sky. No, not that sea. The seas. They are territories of Denanvali. You have water worlds? Fantastic! Oh no, no, it is most certainly not fantastic, unless you want to get eaten by the slough, that is, Kapoor states gravely, a gloomy look transferring through his fluffy feathered face. Toniston has heard this word before, and like flicking through a filing cabinet, his mind races to select it, and seconds later, success. Slough, as in slew of sharks, as in tournament sharks who parade around like they own the place, I tell ya, eating whatever, whomever they see fit, utterly nasty, obnoxious, vile beasts they are. Oh nah, yeah, so they sound like fun for the whole family, and they're swimming in these streams. Most of the streams all around Denanvali connect up to the seas. Sadly, the slew can go wherever they want, whenever, except in the white light, obviously. Kapoor starts pushing the hospital bed once more, this time much slower than before. Can they walk on land too? Toniston asks, secretly wishing and hoping and praying that the answer is a definite no. Of course they can. Water is just their natural habitat, what they are used to. You see, like most of us down here, they stick to what they know, which is not very much, I must say. Is there a bridge across the river? Toniston stretches his neck up, searching for signs of a bridge or similar structure, but ultimately spotting nothing but more hills and a series of mountains far off in the distance. No, not in these parts. So you are going to have to climb on my back. If so much as a talon of yours gets in the water, well, I tell you, they have a rather active proclivity for mer- humans. They will no doubt be able to smell you from miles away. Gulp, Toniston overstates. Kapoor chuckles. 
not to fret. I am more than tall enough to cross. You will be fine. He halts the trolley with ease. Toniston leans forward, peeking over the side of the bed into the stream below. Just climb on my back, quickest way to get you across. Toniston gulps again, albeit to himself this time, unsure if he's yet comfortable enough to actually touch a Twanimal, let alone ride on one's back. Takes a deep breath in, and moves back against the barrel. Suck it up, princess. He psychs himself up, instantly flipping his legs off the bed and climbing down. Kapoor is already on all fours. The human climbs up on the Twanimal's pink hairy back. Part pig? He curiously asks. I beg your pardon? Kapoor responds with incredulity. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend. Toniston blurts out truly the most, read only, genuine sorry he's given anybody. Ever. But Kapoor bursts into his infectious chuckle, slapping his scaly knee in the process. Just coshing with you. My body is pig, correct, Kapoor declares. Toniston battles with himself for a moment to not feel betrayed. He's never been genuinely sorry for anything he has done in his life, and most certainly not for ever offending people. But Twanimals aren't people, he thinks to himself, prompting him to pull his hand out of his pant pocket to hold on tighter as Kapoor carefully crosses the stream, neither one of them realising the hitchhiking lint and half-used tissue falling out as his hand leaves the brown flannelette pyjama pant pocket. Kapoor climbs up on the bank of the opposite side. Water seems to run straight off his scaly areas. His bare arm? Not so much. Toniston hops off the resurrected creature, catching a proper whiff as he slides off. Twanimals seem to smell like old leather and vinegar. Odd, he thinks to himself, but not unpleasant. Once the farmer lifts the spruced-up hospital bed across the creek using just his bare arm, ensuring it stays well above the water, and places it down again, Toniston instantly hops back on, ready to complete the journey into town. Ready? He asks his new Twanimal friend, but Kapoor is sidetracked, staring off upstream, watching the water flow away. You didn't drop anything in the water, did you? No, why? Toniston checks his pockets, knowing full well, Reed assuming, that nothing is in them. Kapoor shakes his head, then turns to Toniston with a shrug and a crooked smile. Must be going craners. Cubpaw chippily chirps. Craners? Seeing things in my cranium. Uh, cranium? Toniston asks, suddenly realising that he should have paid attention in school more often. Cubpaw taps his head. The answer clicks in the boy's brain. Oh, your head. Gotcha. What did you see? I thought I saw something on the water, but by now it must have drifted too far away in the current to be able to see it again. It was probably just a reflection of light, the boy suggests. You are no doubt right, sir. They continue walking again, the flowing hills of the plain making for quite the roller coaster to Toniston, who can't help but shout faster each time they came to the top of a hill. Reaching the edge of the hills, back to flat land, Kapoor leans forward, clearly in agony. Toniston, having just had the ride of his life, looks over his shoulder. Would you like me to push for a while? If you wouldn't mind, Kapoor barely spits out. I haven't run that fast ever, in my life or death. It pains my chest. Did you pop another stitch? Go on then, hop on. Toniston motions to the Twanimal to sit up on the bed. Kapo squats down on the end with all his weight. The bed immediately tips like a catapult. The barrel flies over his head. Kaboosh! It crushes against the coral floor, splitting open at the poorly nailed seams. 
Cubpaw grabs hold of his feathers with both paw and claw. Toniston feels awful. Cubpaw, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. Looking back on it later, Toniston knows very well how a seesaw works and could have perhaps prevented this mishap. But alas, that's the beauty of hindsight. Not to worry, I tell ya. I was going to trade grains for melons. Luckily, I carry spares. Cubpaw reaches under the filthy plastic mattress and pulls out two small brown hessian sacks bursting at the seams. In true Denanvali fashion, the poorly sewn seams. If you have one, you have none, he says with an uneasy smile. So he won't starve. No, of course not. But we better get a move on. Still a long ways to go past those mountains up there. Cubpaw points to a jagged succession of ridges in the far-off distance that features a waterfall spilling down onto it from the oceanic sky above. The domestic mountains. Lots of animals in there, staying out of harm's way. Toniston almost loses his breath at the most epically gorgeous waterfall yet. The slew's way, you mean? Precisely. Hop back on. That completely unnecessary accident has gifted me the boost of energy I needed. Cubpaw motions to the hospital bed, giving Toniston a hand to get up, and on they walk. After what seemed like an hour, Cubpaw the farmer rolls Toniston up to the foot of the mountains. The ten-year-old ginger kid cranes his neck back, getting one last look at the breathtaking waterfall above them before being rolled into the dark, rocky tunnel, at least 300 metres long. Toniston, having enjoyed the ride up until now, suddenly washes over with goosebumps, his arm hairs standing on end, trying to keep focus on his peripheral vision as the sharp, dark walls around him pass, he can only consider what might be lurking in the shadows before incognitively whimpering, Kapoor? Yes, sir? The creature looks down at the overgrown child. Never mind. Toniston tries to hide it, but Kapoor is wise. Bit scared in the dark? We'll be out of the tunnel soon enough. Don't worry, I'm right behind you. For the first time, Cubpaw's voice sounds comforting to Toniston, and the creature was right. A mere ten minutes later, the golden light hits Toniston's unadjusted eyes, forcing him to instantly squint with their stinging. He rubs them, despite their sudden dryness. Welcome to Domestico City, Cubpaw proclaims. The scene before Toniston now comes into focus as his eyes readjust to the light. Spread around, forming a large, circular shape, at least twenty giant, oddly-shaped buildings made of all kinds of sea wreckage. Planes, ships, whale bones, coral, and at the centre of it all, a large oil rig now repurposed into a colourful skyscraper. Or is that sea scraper? Toniston questions himself. Hundreds, if not thousands of twanimals rush around the deep grey-coloured coral floor surrounding a large lake, where several twanimals are hopping in or out, depending on what business they have. Several poorly assembled signs stick out of the ground in various places, but Toniston struggles to read the claw scratches on them, clearly some sort of twanimal language. The bursting scene of living oddities makes Toniston's heart fill with joy. It's like a city. Bollycosh, it is a city. We learn from humans more than you realise, I tell ya. Cowpaw begins pushing the cart again. Toniston is suddenly reminded of the first time he saw his father sing on stage to thousands of people, looking up at him with his jaw dropped to the floor, except with amazingly designed buildings, not his late father. For the first time, the pain of his father's death doesn't sting. He realises this and shakes his head in disbelief. Too much too soon, perhaps. 
Kalpo comes to a halt after five minutes of passing the most amazingly pathetic looking mashup creatures one could ever see. From a part turkey kangaroo tiger lamb twanimal to a fish faced panda twan with parts of parrot and rat, and even a twanimal that looks like six or seven different sea creatures sewn together. Toniston's eyes shed a dry tear at the sheer tragic beauty that passes them on the designated pathway. Most twanimals, it seems, are just as astounded to see Toniston atop of that farmer's trolley cart, whispering to each other as they pass. Words like merge and unregistered seem to float to Toniston every now and then. Clearly the boy was creating as much buzz as a twanimal in the human world would. Kapoor stops the hospital bed abruptly at the bottom of what looks like a giant cylindrical coral tower with a wide coral meat pie on top, hundreds of tiny windows unevenly running up and around it. I have an idea. Hop off. I'm not carrying this up. Simply way too many stairs and I'm feeling rather lazy, Kapoor states. Twenty minutes and undoubtedly 2,018 stairs later. Kapo the Twanimal kneels down on all fours, letting the human boy slide off his back again. Thanks for the ride, Toniston avoids calling it what it was, a piggyback, for fear of offending the large mashed up creature. No qualms, you can carry me down on the way back, Kapo says with a chuckle, walking past Toniston down a dimly lit, lopsided corridor. Where are we going? To see a friend, Kapo whispers, stopping at a door that barely reads 421 in claw scratched digits. He knocks three times with his lizard arm. Toniston stands back, finding a nice shadow to hide in. After a few faint thumps from behind the door, it creaks open. Toniston expects to see a Twanimal's head poke out, but nothing appears, only a voice. Cubby, how goes you? A female sings out with a joyous trumpeting, clearly out of excitement. Baroo! The door swings wide open. Just in town for some melons and water, and to introduce you to somebody. The bird steps aside. Toniston peers around, his heart jumping slightly when he sees the short, metre-high, elephant-headed Twanimal standing in the doorway. A human? Come in, come in! The small creature rushes aside, letting Kapo and Toniston enter the large apartment. It seems rather spacious for such a little lady. The pastel green walls are lined with several poorly made shelves of varying colours, each with familiar objects scattered across them, but not always standing the correct way up. The floor feels rubbery under Toniston's dirty bare feet, and being a dark blue colour, Toniston assumes it must be dried whale skin. Spoiler alert, he's not wrong. This is my human friend, Toniston. Kampor introduces the suddenly shy bully. Toniston? What a perfect name! Pleasure to meet you, sir! She bows. Toniston takes in the sum of her parts. An elephant head with rabbit cheeks and ears. Sewn onto a cow's body, with what appears to be four rooster legs and a furry black tail, obviously belonging to a cat or dog of some sort. Why, aren't you golden? G'day, Toniston says with a smile, his eyebrows raised and as much friendliness emoting from his eyes as this bully has ever managed to muster in his short life. I'm Milfred, welcome to my den. So, where did you come from? Such a long story, Millie. We have only stopped in for a wing flap. Need to get back before the light change, Kapoor responds. Of course, of course. So what can I do you for? She curls her trunk up and presses it against her right cheek. I need to ask a favour. It seems we had a bit of an accident on the way here. Kapoor recites the catapulting of the grains to Milford, while Toniston wanders around the room surveying the hundreds of human artefacts lined up on the many shelves. 
Well, that's just for painting the tail, ain't it? Leave it with me. I've got a few spare items that will fetch a good price. I don't want them, so you have no need to pay me back. Boo! Milford trumpets. Ah, but I will, me lady. You are the bee's knees, Millie. Yeah, I am. Milford trots off with her adorable chicken walk into an adjoining room, leaving Cubpaw to join Toniston. She has one of the most extensive personal collections of useless human items on all of Denanfoli. I think it's wonderful, Toniston genuinely declares. Have you used any of those things? Milfred excitedly asks, re-entering the room, now carrying a brown basket with her trunk. Plenty, all the time, though I'm too young to shave yet, Toniston replies, holding up a rusty razor blade that couldn't be more than a few decades old, at least judging by its design. Everything I have either travelled with humans or fell out of the sky and into the valleys. I like to keep them and piece together what life on Earth must be like for your clever species. Didn't you meet humans up there? Toniston asks the short Twanimal. Oh, only the one who killed me. Milfred's voice cracks slightly as she trails off in thought. The room turns silent from awkwardness. Can't speak for my family mate though. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Toniston is on a roll today with genuine apologies. Millie simply trumpets joyously, a big cheesy grin on her face. Can't change the past now, can I? I suppose not, Toniston says, agreeing with Milfred. Don't worry, you're not missing much. Humans are morons. <coughs> Milfred trumpets as if surprised by Toniston's words. She goes to speak, but is cut off. What treasures have you got, Millie? Kapoor interjects. Milfred snaps out of her train of thought. Remembering the basket she's carrying, she hands it to Cubby, who takes it with his claw. Cubpaw reaches in, pulling out two spy glasses, a dented aluminium milk jug, and a pair of manky shoes, which Millie instantly snatches from him by stretching her proportioned trunk out as far as she can. These are for you, Toniston, Milfred says proudly, holding out the worn-out shoes for the boy to take. He can't hold back his excitement. No, really. Jeez, that's... wow, thanks. Toniston tries his hardest to sound enthused, but even Cubpaw isn't convinced. The Twanimal looks at him sideways, spotting a wry smile forming across his beak. Milfred, thankfully, is none the wiser. She's far too proud of herself. I noticed you arrived without shoes. They should fit. Go on, try the one. Millie sits like a dog awaiting its meal, swaying her trunk to and fro in excitement in sync with her black tail. The manky shoes now at her feet. Toniston regrettably slips the left shoe on first. It feels scratchy on his bare feet, but otherwise fits perfectly. Better than that awful coral, I guess, he reasons with himself. Milfred pushes the right shoe forward, leaving Toniston no other option but to be polite. He slips it on to the same scratchy outcome. The Twanimal flips around, disappearing into the mysterious dark room of human artifacts. You can take them off when we leave, I tells you. Cubpaw reassures Toniston, clearly aware of the boy's true feelings. We're no way back to Earth. Milfred begins from the other room. Surprisingly, with all his questions, Toniston had failed to ask the most important one. No way back to Earth. Millie's squeaky voice echoes through the human's head. His hairs stand on end. The short Twanimal returns, finishing her sentence. Not that Toniston hears. He's stunned, numb to all around him. Not paying attention to Milfred talk about the jacket she holds draped over her trunk, 
nor that it once belonged to their heroic friend who gave his life to save her and Kapoor, nor does Toniston notice both of his new Twanimal friends slip it on over his jade-green, wildebeest-skull t-shirt. He can't even feel them navigate his arms into the sleeves before rolling the cuffs up so that he will still be able to use his fins, hands, much like how Riley needed to. And he most certainly doesn't hear Millie induct him into their group as an honorary Dinan Valian artifact seeker. He can only hear white noise and panic. A million and one thoughts race through his mind. And whilst I'd love to bore you with all the petty things Toniston would miss, David Attenborough documentaries, ice cream, pizza, David Attenborough documentaries, the most predominant, the most important, is the final word that springs to mind. Mum. Mum must be worried sick. And that indeed was chapter four. Okay, what do we unpack? Well, first off, the title. All the chapter titles obviously are based on single title movies. If you haven't worked that out by now, then whoops daisies I've just spoiled it for you and ruined that revelation that you should have gotten with Sharknado and the fact that I've said at the start of every episode or during every episode, I have said what the title was inspired by. This time, of course, it was inspired by the Christopher Nolan movie Inception, which is to represent Toniston being incepted into their group. However, I still have my reservations about that chapter title, as I do with Sharknado. Arrival, fine. Bully, fine. Other chapter titles, completely fine. But this one I was a bit unsure of, and then I looked I looked for films that had a single word title that were about walking or running. Obviously, I couldn't use Jaws, because while they talk about the sharks, we don't actually see them. Uh, some references in there were Monument Valley, which is, uh, is that Utah? I believe it's Utah. That was the uh, visual inspiration for this area of Denanvali, and maybe others, who knows? As I have said time and time again, you should have read the books by now, and not be listening to this if you haven't. Mad Max, obviously a big inspiration for this whole series in terms of visual aesthetics. It's not a post-apocalyptic Earth, however that sparse, barren, desert-like appearance is very apocalyptic, lots of spikes. Obviously there's steampunk as a theme, and all different, like space punk, and this punk, and that punk, and any punk you want to. However, I would call Toniston tribal punk, because as I've said before, these animals are in tribes, so it's very, um, it's very tribal. There was a little joke in there about Perth. I apologise to anybody from Perth who was offended, and if you can tell by the sound of my voice, I'm not really sorry, it was a joke. You're Australian, you should be able to take a joke, okay? That joke was actually written while I was on my way to Perth in the middle of the ocean, which is where the uh, second half of this chapter was written, and the rest of the book up to about chapter... 12, I think, or maybe only chapter 11 or 10. Either way, a good portion of it was written on the ocean, going around Australia and New Zealand. So, anyways, I stayed in Perth. Well, I didn't stay in Perth. I didn't actually go to Perth. I stayed in Fremantle at a backpackers where some guy would get up at four o'clock in the morning and go to work all day. He would come home and drink... When I say come home, he'd come back to the backpackers. 
He wouldn't shower at all. He would drink all night and smoke pot all night right outside the window of the backpackers. And then he would go to bed at about two o'clock in the morning where he would sleep in front of the air conditioner, making sure that the whole room was filled with his B.O. And it was fucking awful. Also at that backpackers, a homeless guy shit in the showers. However, one good thing came out of that, and I met up with a friend who I had made a couple of years earlier on the Twitter, who happens to be my co-host for Thrush and Treasure. So Gareth and I met up and we had a beer. Uh, Anyway, so I won't talk too much about Perth and Fremantle, but either way, I had the worst time when I was there. Um, I was hungry through that recording again, so my tummy kept rumbling. It keeps rumbling again now because I haven't had my dinner yet. One thing about this series, which stems back to 2006-2007, when I was developing this world, and all the areas and the factions and who the bad guys are going to be. And I looked up, I swear to God, I looked up what the collective noun for sharks is. And there was a few of them, five or six of them, and one of them, I swear to God, was slew. And when I read it, I said, perfect, that's it, that's what I want, that's it. That's the name of the gang or the, their faction. It's perfect. It sounds sinister. So I never questioned it again, and I kept it like that. And in the novel, it says Toniston puts two and two together that a slew of sharks, and he works it out there. Now, last year, when I was writing book two, I decided to double-check this, because for some reason, in my head, I've always had it that a collective noun for echidna is a cerebrum of echidna. It's not really true, But in my head it is, so I pretend it is, and all that. Um, But it's not the same with slew, because I actually looked that up 14 years ago. I swear to God I did. Anyways, last year I looked up the echidna one to see if it maybe could have possibly been cerebrum. Like, what a knob I can be sometimes. And I thought, hmm, I'm just going to look at sharks, just to see what else there is. And I couldn't find slew anywhere. So still now, I don't know, is slew a collective noun for sharks? Well, it is in Toniston's world. Uh, the name of the city, and well, the name of the territory, D- Domesticosia, and obviously Domestico City, is very amateur. <laughs> I probably should have changed that at some point, but I left it. However, it, it has the meaning of obviously being domesticated. So there's a lot of domesticated species that, or tribes that, well, they were domesticated animals on Earth. Uh, however, having the kosher at the end of it obviously represents a sort of a sense of, um, well, a sense of normalcy, I guess. They run their society like a normal society, like a normal human society, as opposed to some of the other areas that may possibly not go with that sort of lifestyle. But I don't want to give away too much. Again, you should have read the books by now. Anyways, you may have noticed there was a little tricky number in there when I... Well, there was two tricky numbers. Uh, 421, need I say more? Wonder who lives next door? Uh, Also, 2018 stairs. As I previously said in a uh, 
earlier episode. This book was published in 2018, so there was a little hint there. I think I did that in all three books, actually, where I slipped in a little tricky, um, using the number of the year. I know all through the books I tried never to repeat a number as much as I could, and then when I would use numbers, I would draw numbers from pop culture. 525,600 minutes. 101 Dalmatians. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. These all have numbers in them, specific to them, or, you know, whatnot, so I'd, I used them where I could, where I needed a number. Or, I don't really like to say there are hundreds and thousands of, and I have done that plenty of times through it, because you do run out of numbers. You, you've got to start repeating yourself here and there. Which, speaking of repeating myself, over the past couple of years of going back and editing this first book, I notice a hell of a lot. I use the terms, or I use the, um, the wording it seems like, or something that seems like, or it appears to be, and I had to go back and fix a lot of that, change that, because A, it's, again, completely amateur, right? I know, I'm well aware of that, uh, but also, you know, you do want to change things up, but it, it really does hint to the audience that things may not be what they seem, and I didn't want that to be the case. Not at all. Not like, uh, what's a good, um, perhaps in Fight Club, Maybe that's a good example, Fight Club, where um, through the movie you get the... Or before we meet Tyler Durden, we actually get a flash of him on the escalator. So it's sort of a... You get that impression that things aren't really what they seem. If you have seen the whole film and you know the ending, then you get that... You know, that that's that hint to it, perhaps. So I didn't want anything like that because that's not what this story is. It's not The Wizard of Oz. He... Sorry to disappoint you, but he will not wake up at the end of this, and it will be a dream. He has been sent to hell. Basically, heaven for Twanimals, hell for humans. When it comes to the main Twanimal characters, they most often trotted or flapped or swam into my head as they were. Their main species intact. Maybe sometimes I, I couldn't picture their tail or their legs or something like that. Cubpaw did change a couple of times because I didn't want it, I didn't want his body parts to be too easy, as in I didn't want him to have too many advantages. Obviously, Toniston maybe stacked up against his fellow students at school has advantages there, but not here on Denanvali. So if I then have Cubpaw be too big and strong and have, you know, too many good parts that he could use in a fight, well, then that's going to put them at too much of an advantage when where's the danger? Um, so I did quite a few times go through a different a different um, variations with Cubpaw, but most everyone else really was, of the main characters, was as they were. Okay, so I guess really that's everything I have to talk about about this episode, which when I was um, recording and writing down notes as I went along, which I haven't done the previous two times, because I thought I'm going to be a little bit more prepared this time, and I was, and it felt like it was too quick. So... I'm going to go anyways, because whatever else I could talk about. Yeah, so make sure to check out our other programs. Obviously, we've got Thrash and Treasure, which I mentioned before. Who knows what else we've got coming up in the future. So take care, look after yourselves, and I'll see you next episode.
Oh no, my coffee's dying.